Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreaux, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty and homelessness and mental health challenges. According to the city.nyc, during the coronavirus shutdown, New York City experienced its biggest economic downturn since the Great Depression with 631,000 jobs lost. New York City was hit harder than any other American city. According to the Center for New York City Affairs, 13.6% jobs were lost, which is twice the 5.9% national job decline and greater than the job losses experienced in the next 14 largest US cities. The Wall Street Journal reports that as a result of business shutdowns and job loss, New York City renters owe more than one billion dollars in unpaid rent and are in danger uh, in consequence of that of being evicted. So the reopening of all businesses and entertainment venues by Mayor Bill de Blasio on July 1st, 2021 is crucial to the stability of New York City's economy. According to NBCNewYork.com, Mayor de Blasio announced that restaurants, bars, stores, shops, hair salons, barbershops, gyms, stadiums, music halls, museums, and theaters all will open to full capacity on July 1st. Schools will be back to full strength in September 2021, and uh, we're making our own plans here at City College. Um, in fact, New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo said that he's hopeful that New York can fully reopen earlier than July 1st, but was reluctant to make projections. But he did recently announce that CUNY and SUNY students will be required to be vaccinated before they come to campus, provided that the vaccine has final FDA approval, which is something we're all looking forward to. So today we're going to discuss where we are with the virus, with public health, with vaccinations, and return to something like normalcy. And we have uh, with us today Dean Susan Perkins, who is the Dean of the Division of Science at, here at City College. And later in the show, we'll have New York City Council member Mark Levine, who chairs the City Council's Committee on Health. So first, let me tell you about Dean Perkins. Uh, Susan Perkins is Dean of the Martin and Michelle Cohen School of Science at the City College of New York. She teaches disease and history, which covers the basics of infectious diseases, the types of organisms that cause diseases in humans, their transformation modes, immunology, and epidemiology. The focus in this class is on the major diseases that have had historical impacts on civilization. So she is a perfect guest to lead us through the first half of this conversation. Prior to coming to City College, Dean Perkins served as curator and professor of microbial genomics at the American Museum of Natural History, and she occupied that position for 15 years. She's the co-author of Welcome to the Microbiome, Getting to Know the Trillions of Bacteria and Other Microbes in and Around You. She's also co-edited Malaria Parasites, Comparative Genomics, Evolution, and Molecular Biology. Dean Perkins earned a bachelor's degree in arts from SUNY Potsdam and a PhD in biology from the University of Vermont. Just noticing, my sister went to Potsdam and my nephew uh, just graduated from uh, University of Vermont. So uh, familiar with both of those schools. Dean Perkins, welcome to From City to the World. 
Thanks, Vince. I'm really happy to have be here today. I'm glad you had me on the show. Well, it's, your work is so appropriate to the topic that we have at hand and, and uh, really fortunate to have someone with your expertise on campus. So, so let's actually talk a little bit about, about your background. You came to CCNY from a position at the Museum of Natural History. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your career trajectory and, and, and what you hope to bring to CCNY's approach to the sciences? Sure. So as you mentioned, uh, I went to SUNY Potsdam. So I'm a, I'm a first-generation college student. I grew up in northern New York. So SUNY Potsdam uh, was in my backyard. It's where my mother worked for 31 years. And I always had a passion for the outdoors and science, particular biology. And so at Potsdam, I studied general biology as well as some chemistry and got interested in genetics. Uh, I went off to graduate school. I actually started at University of Maryland, and that's actually where the parasite bug bit me, if you will. I got really fascinated by parasites and how they shape our world. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, I moved to University of Vermont for my PhD work, uh, where I studied malarial parasites, primarily in lizards. Uh, I was very excited to land the position at the Museum of Natural History uh, because it allowed me to blend three important components of my work, which is research, uh, an ability to interact with students, including at our graduate program, but also to take that science and my interest and translate them to a really diverse group of audiences. And so I have talked about parasites, evolution, and other aspects of biology with everything from preschoolers to seniors. Uh, in a variety of contexts, including public lectures, the book you mentioned, as well as a large exhibit. Um, as I have transitioned to City College, it's allowed me to get back into that more formal higher education mode, which I'm very happy to do. And what I love about being at City College is there's a true opportunity to foster uh, interdisciplinarity as well as what's called multidisciplinarity across the scientific departments as well as across campus. And so I hope I can continue to bring my expertise in translating science and, and getting the public excited about science to our students, our faculty, as well as our community in Harlem. I realized that uh, a virus, coronavirus, is not it's not a parasite, it's not a bacteria, but, but one of the things that you've been interested in is the relationship between the movements of, I guess, can we call them all pathogens, um, viruses, yeah. bacteria, parasites? So the movement of pathogens between animals and humans. Um, I wonder if that's helped you understand the trajectory of, of this virus and, 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 and what, it, what it's taught you. Yeah, that's, that's a very important question. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I have studied malarial parasites that infect lizards and other organisms. So that includes the parasites that use birds, deer, bats, uh, and other animals as their host. What's interesting and a contrast between things like malaria and COVID is that the malaria parasites tend to be very host specific. We don't see a lot of host transfers with them um, although, of course, they must have happened because they infect a wide variety of hosts. Viruses, uh, I would say much more generally, are a little bit more uh, free to, to jump between hosts. That's not true for all viruses, but certainly we have some uh, fantastic slash tragic examples, things like influenza, which infect a wide variety of hosts, which is why 
they maintain uh, their status as a problem pathogen for us. I think that my particular background in studying things like evolution, genomics, and biogeography of parasites has given me uh, a solid perspective as this current pandemic uh, fueled by the COVID-19 virus has happened. I think it's really important to understand the grounding of epidemiology, as well as the evolutionary potential that these viruses have, uh, particularly in the time frame that that uh, occurs on. Um, and I think that my work has always had a focus on the relationships between parasites and hosts, understanding the, the stakes, if you will, the trade-offs that happen during these infections. Um, so, I mean, I'm not an expert, as you say, in viruses, but this broad view of pathogens um, gives me an insight into this pandemic. We are, um, I think, deeply concerned, particularly as the pandemic has progressed, about the ways that the virus has changed as it gets passed from you know person to person or, or, or I guess sometimes from animals to people or back and forth, that a lot of what we're now referring to as variants, the opportunity for a variant to emerge happens when it's passed, if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, can you talk a little bit about these mechanisms of, of, of where these variants come from and 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 you know what your what your study has has um, you know, what kind of illumination your study has brought onto onto these questions? Absolutely. So, as you say, uh, one of the major concerns we have right now are these new variants. I mean, we had one pop up uh, in my old neighborhood of Washington Heights and, and northern Manhattan. So we know we know they can happen close to home. Uh, so these variants are viruses that have had specific mutations in their genome uh, that have allowed them to have some advantage in their transmission or their life cycle. And one of the important aspects of these viruses, of course, is that as they infect a human or, or, or whatever their host is, you've got an arms race happening within that host. So the viruses, if they have different uh, genetic sequences are now in a state of competition within that host. Whichever virus genome, whichever uh, variant replicates fastest is going to be the one that transmits better. And that's what poses this very dangerous situation, right? So every host, every human that is infected with coronavirus is an opportunity for these variants to emerge through replication errors in their genome, compete with each other, and now become more highly transmissible. And so if we go back to last spring and early summer when the phrase of the day was flatten the curve, right? We talked about lowering that curve. And of course, one of the main reasons we wanted to flatten the curve was to ease the pressure on our, our medical system, right? We didn't want our hospitals to become overflowing with patients, stress our medical staff, and obviously have it spiral uh, in terms of other medical emergencies. And th that was true. That certainly was true. But as an evolutionary parasitologist, to me, flattening the curve is also about just keeping that number of infected hosts lower. Because as I said, every, every host that gets infected is a new petri dish. It's a new opportunity for these variants to evolve. And so 
you know, this is one of the things that has worried me first within our country as we've watched cases spike uh, in late summer and fall, places like Florida and Texas. And now, of course, what we're seeing happen in places like Brazil and India. Um, on the one hand, of course, it's a it's an unfathomable amount of human tragedy with death and disease, but it's also a scary situ situation of having so many hosts infected with greater and greater potential for these mutations and then the selection for those to happen. The other issue um, in terms of evolution of pathogens that does worry me is is what I'm seeing, and I hope I'm I'm hope I'm wrong here a little bit. I'm seeing a plateauing of our vaccination rates, and and that plateauing could be a, a positive thing in terms of we're getting we're getting a lot of people the vaccine, but without a higher rate of vaccination, it actually could set up a dangerous situation where unvaccinated people will be exposed to stronger versions of the virus, right? Because from the virus's perspective, it wants to replicate and get into another host. That's its entire goal, if you will, it's evolutionary uh, pressure. And so if it can only get into unvaccinated hosts, there may be an evolutionary pressure for it to get to become more deadly and more transmissible. And so that's the counterbalancing aspect of this pandemic, at least where we are right now, that does make me worry as well. It's not just variants, it's how deeply we can up our vaccination rates. So, I mean, these are both really important points. Um, you know, the, the idea that every infected person, even somebody who's asymptomatic, you know, even, even someone who's not in personal danger, of, of a life-threatening manifestation of the disease is an opportunity for a new variant to emerge. And really the best way to, to, to avoid that is for everybody to get vaccinated. This is a good moment for a little plug for me. In June, we will be doing um, an informational webinar on the vaccination, the vaccines and how they all, how they all work and what the dangers and, and, and benefits are. So we'll be saying more about that. Um, as the month of May goes on. Susan, given where we currently are, where rates of contagion are falling and rates of vaccination are rising, although, as you just said, there's always the danger that, that, that um, uh, less and less people now may be willing to get the vaccination going forward. But what do you think the greatest remaining dangers are going forward? And, 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 and then let me add on to that as well. What do you think may survive in our public health from 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 how we're uh, treating and managing the the disease so far but let's let's start with this question of of what the greatest dangers uh, remaining might be and we've already talked about um, new variants mm -hmm. yeah and uh, you know you mentioned that contagion levels are falling and I, every day, every morning, I reload the New York City website looking at our seven-day average, and it's been such a breath of relief to watch that, yeah. that overall percentage positive fall. But as you say, you know, we still, we still have dangers ahead of us. Um, of course, we've talked about vaccine and the plateauing of that. I think, I think that we, and I do mean we across not just academics, but also folks that have access to um, connect with the public in terms of information. 
we need to do a slightly better job or a much better job in terms of getting information out about the vaccine um, so that we don't have increased complacency. Uh, I know I heard several people say that they hadn't gotten it yet or were waiting because they didn't feel that it was their turn. In fact, one of my own healthcare providers said, oh, I don't think this is my turn, which just shocked me, um, of course, because now we quickly have moved to a state where the vaccine is open to everybody. Uh, our own clinic uh, at City College campus is now allowing walk-ins for the vaccine. They're happening at my former employer, the Museum of Natural History, and you hear about them now, subway stations are having them. So the access and the notion of it's my, not my turn, I think we're past that. Um, in terms of other dangers that we face, I, I'm going to be really interested to see how this next phase as the vaccine becomes more available to youth in our community rolls out. I think, I think this is where we're going to see um, an uptick in that hesitancy. You know, an individual might be more comfortable having getting the vaccine themselves, but they might be more hesitant um, to ask their child or, or to take their child to get the vaccine. And going back to the information aspect of this, you know, there has been some, some misinformation out there for sure because two of the, the primary vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, use a relatively novel technology, which is uh, to inject messenger RNA into our bodies that prompts our cells to make that spike protein so that our immune system mounts the response. And so there's, there's been a bit of misinformation that that messenger RNA can somehow integrate itself in our genome and will cause problems, you know, within children or future generations. And so uh, we need to get past that. And then, I mean, to me, one of the other dangers that we are going to face, particularly in the short term, and I know you know this, uh, Vince, from your position at our college and, and our location in the community, is that this pandemic has really illuminated health disparities and and our immediate addressing of the pandemic as well as how we move forward is also a, a huge important question of social justice. Uh, and that goes for both health and education, of course. We cannot, we cannot let the gaps that already existed widen further through a, an unequal treatment of communities uh, in, our, in our city and beyond. Um, and that's not something we can ignore, and it's got to be dealt with in parallel with, with the medical work we have ahead of us. Can we talk a little bit then about, about you know, in, in the education field, a lot of times you hear people saying, um, you know, uh, there are some things that we're going to keep from going online. You know, City College, we had done uh, before the pandemic, about 3% of our classes were online. And afterwards, you know, we have over this course of the year learned how to do this and we'll probably keep at least a higher level of online instruction than we had going into the pandemic. I wonder if, if there, are, there are parallel things in terms of healthcare. Are there things that we've learned to do in terms of managing the health of the public that, that we've learned to do in the context of the pandemic, but, but maybe shouldn't go away? 
Yeah, I think that there are things in terms of healthcare that that we should keep. I guess two immediately come to mind. Uh, one was the proliferation of of telehealth appointments uh, that was certainly existed before the pandemic, but was not so common. Uh, I see this as a boon. I mean, there is nothing that compares to to having a, a medical professional do an examination and an in-person diagnosis, but for a lot of for a lot of more routine appointments, um, it's more convenient and probably almost as efficient to to do those via telehealth appointments. Um, and actually, the bridge to the second point I was going to make is that counseling and mental health via telehealth works fantastically. Um, you know, you don't even need to be in the same city. You don't need to to go across town you can dial into a counselor pretty much anywhere in the world, um, which as I said, that's a bridge to the second point, which is a benefit that I've seen or a silver lining maybe is a better way to phrase it of the pandemic is a real appreciation for the intertwining of our physical health and our mental health. We made huge sacrifices, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, to stay close to home, limit our movements, limit our behaviors. Our children were getting homeschooled. Our college students were at home taking their classes. Um, but we know that that's taken a huge emotional toll on everyone uh, who's been denied the social interactions and, and we know how important they are. And so I really, I really am optimistic that we will carry that forward, that we will not ignore um, the impacts that, that certain health situations have on our mental health and, and how important that is. I can't let the moment pass without emphasizing uh, a couple things that, that, that you actually emphasized in, in your answer. The first is City College, like many, many sites around the city, is a vaccination site. You do not need health insurance. You will be not asked to pay a dime for a vaccination and and everybody is now eligible um, up to the age of, Susan, correct me if I'm wrong, 16, 16 and up? Yes, I believe that's true for the Pfizer vaccine. Right, and, and, and we are waiting any day now, probably maybe even as soon as tomorrow for children between 12 and 16 to be eligible for a vaccine. These are sure. walk-up sites now. So if you've got a little bit of time, I know it's City College site, we are moving people through the vaccination process in about 20 minutes. So you don't need money. You don't need an appointment. All you need is the ability to roll up your sleeve and stand in line for a few minutes. And, and then you wait 15 minutes afterwards to make sure everything's okay. So, so, so really and truly, um, if, you are, if you have not been vaccinated, if you have questions about the vaccine, educate yourself because this is the single uh, best way you can protect yourself, your family, our city, and, and really our species. Um, going back to uh, what we heard earlier, every infection yeah, is, is an opportunity for there to be a contest among different uh, viruses, different uh, elements of the virus in your body to produce a stronger, more deadly, more contagious virus. So, so let's all uh, do our part. Um, I'd like to ask you, Susan, to to um, maybe speak a little bit less as a scientist now and more as a dean um, who is you know fielding questions from students and 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 managing um, you know, the process of communicating with your community about where we're at and and, and what we're facing. 
can you talk a little bit about you know what you're hearing from students in relationship to the return? Um, are there you know there are areas of concern or anxiety? What level of, of of vaccine hesitancy do you hear from from students? What's what's the climate in in, in your area of the campus? Sure. Well, well, first, what I'd like to say is I wish I heard more. I wish I saw the students more. Uh, as you know, I just started my position in January 2020. And so I only had a couple months of getting to know our students uh, before we went into this remote scenario. And so I, I miss that. I miss being in greater contact uh, with the students on a daily basis. I, you know, I'm seeing the same thing, though, with our students as I do with faculty and staff. It's very bimodal. Uh, you have people that are just itching to get back to coming to campus, working in their office, or being in a in a physical classroom to learn. Um, and then you have those that are very hesitant. Um, and what I am hearing is not only the risk of a, of getting COVID. I think you know that was certainly paramount earlier uh, in the pandemic. That's waning, as as you said, we've. We've watched the numbers of cases drop, the vaccination rates are, are improving, and so the risk of getting the disease has fallen. But other risks still remain. I mean, we've seen, we've seen an uptick in certain crimes in certain neighborhoods. Um, there's been, I think, partly due to just the lag of taking public transportation on a, on a regular basis. We sort of, you know, I, I, I say this myself as I've taken the subway, you, you kind of forgot about the day-to-day -day grind of being on the subway, being packed in the metal box with, with your fellow New Yorkers. And so I have seen this hesitancy to, to go back to where we were in terms of, of coming to campus um, and those complications. A another hesitancy though, that, that maybe I'm not seeing so much or project that I'm projecting into this is that uh, there may be reasons why students delay a return to campus if they themselves have pre-existing health conditions or, or people at their homes do. They may want to continue to learn remotely. And there is a concern that that will produce a, a segregated type of education system where you have the students who are physically in the classroom getting a more intensive, more rigorous, and, and better experience in terms of that education. And so I think we want to be careful about uh, providing as equal an opportunity as we can. Um, I think young people, uh, many young people, have been a little bit slow about getting vaccines. Uh, we know that that there was, uh, you know, there was less risk, definitely fewer deaths in young people, um, but that doesn't mean that there weren't potential long-term effects that we just don't know about. Um, and there may be a tendency to feel like you're a bit immortal when you're 20, but of course, uh, it, as you mentioned, it's not just an individual thing, getting the vaccine, it is a public service effort in and of itself. It's important to protect the community, to keep those numbers of overall infections down. Yeah, it's a really important, um, really important point. Um, I've got one last question for you, and it's, it's in some ways it's the big one. We've come out of our our life, our political life, at, at, from a time when the role of science and knowledge in general has been denigrated. And you know, I think looking at the shift in the response to the pandemic that occurred 
when a new political regime came in in Washington, a regime that took science a little bit more seriously, you see how much that cost us. And so my question is, how do we rebuild the role of science in our policy making? And even in the, you know, the information environment surrounding our citizens, where so many people, um, when you ask them why they're not getting the vaccine, there's lots and lots of reasons, but some of them are reasons that have no basis in science. And in fact, are kind of scientific sounding falsehoods, like, uh, you know, um, that the the vaccination sheds protein spikes. That sounds very scientific and it's utter nonsense and it's preventing people from getting this vaccination. So how do we rebuild a culture of of science-based policymaking? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question, as you say. Um, you know, science hasn't been immune, pun intended here, I suppose, uh, from the same uh, viral, again, another pun intended, uh, of misinformation that's out there. It's so easy to Google something, find a website. As you said, it sounds authoritative, it sounds scientific, and it's so easy to spread that misinformation. And so I think, I think there are a number of components that we need to do um, simultaneously. You know, one is continue to teach critical thinking skills, you know, starting, starting at very young ages, certainly continuing through high school. And as, as students come into institutions like City College, really teach our citizens how to filter out peer-reviewed quality information from the hype that can exist anywhere on the internet. Um, until we do that, this is going to be an uphill battle. Um, you mentioned the, the change that we've already perceived when, when Joe Biden stepped into office. And of course, scientists around the country cheered when he instituted a new cabinet level position for science. This is a huge step forward um, and a return to a commitment to the necessary federal infrastructure involving science, right? One of the, the major offices within the executive branch is the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And under the former administration, there were a huge number of vacancies in that office, which made it very impotent. It was hard to have the voices of science playing those important roles through legislative decisions and other aspects. And so, you know, that's, that's another aspect is the validation, the respect, and the integration of science into what our government's doing. And then on the public side of things, you know, I, I do think we need to, to do a better job in terms of, and I don't want to say make scientists celebrities, but, you know, you saw what happened with Anthony Fauci. He became this you know, role model, you have, you have candles, you know, like you would make it, a, you would have it a shrine with Fauci's um, uh, face on them. You know, he's, he's become this very important figure, but, but we have right. such a dearth of, of, of scientists. You know, if you ask an average person on the street, name a famous scientist, you're going to hear the same couple of answers over and over again. We are not uh, putting out scientists as authority and exciting figures. So, um, those are certainly important. Uh, and then, of course, to, to return to the very first question you asked me about my career trajectory, I think, I think it's important to take scientists who are willing to do this. I know not all are, but, but give them the training and the resources and the time 
to make those connections to the public across various sectors so that scientists don't come across as as either you know the mad scientist in the lab or or the removed person that that speaks in a language that no one understands but real human beings that uh, that want to connect, want to share the excitement uh, and the importance of what they do. So I think all of those things, as well as, as more, certainly are going to help us uh, rebuild that trust that you mentioned. Joining our conversation now is New York City Council Member Mark Levine. Uh, Mr. Levine represents the 7th District in Northern Manhattan, and he serves as the chair of the Council's Committee on Health. As a member of the Progressive Caucus, uh, Mark Levine is a leader in many issues, including housing, education, economic justice, transportation, the environment, and more. Councilmember Levine has been a strong advocate for addressing inequality in New York City. As Parks Chair in the 2014-2017 session, he successfully pushed for greater equity for parks in New York's low and moderate income neighborhoods. He's also a leading voice in affordable housing issues, including the fight to get legal representation for all tenants in housing court. Uh, Mr. Levine began his career as a bilingual math and science teacher in South Bronx, and he also founded the Neighborhood Trust Federal Credit Union. Before joining City Council, he served as the Executive Director of Teach for America New York and as Executive Director for the Center for After School Excellence at TAFC, as the Chair of the Traffic and Transportation Committee on Manhattan Community Board 12. Councilmember Levine is a longtime Washington Heights resident with his wife and their two sons. He has a BA in physics from Haverford College and a master's in public policy from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. And I don't think I'll be giving away any secrets to say that one of his two sons is an engineering student at City College. Councilmember Levine, welcome to From City to the World. So, Councilmember Levine, I'd like to start by asking you to give us a general situation around on how things stand in the city in relationship to the pandemic. I know things are going better than they had been, but um, you know, what are we doing? What's changed in our approach to managing the virus, and and what is it that we still need to do better? Do you think? Well, first, thank you, President Boudreaux, for having me on. I'm really honored to have this conversation on such a critical topic. At a moment of of optimism, no doubt for our broader fight against this pandemic, but also um, a time when there are serious challenges, serious questions of equity. The good news is that we have made such progress on vaccination. We have well over half of the city's adult population has now at least received their first shot. And thanks to that, in large part, the number of new infections has dropped dramatically, now down to about 1,200 a day, still very high but um, we were at well over 3,000 a day just uh, a couple of months ago. And thankfully the number of new hospitalizations dropping as well. And this is incredible news for those of us who've had our vaccine. It really means we can start to open up our lives again, see family, hug people, take our masks off in many settings. It's, it really is life-changing and we just can't say it enough. Uh, getting the vaccine is the best single thing that any of us can do ourselves, for our family, and for our communities. But our progress has been uneven. And I'm sorry to say that in a pandemic which has been defined by inequality, we are yet again seeing inequality in the vaccination program. And while I mentioned overall progress, there is a dramatic disparity between vaccination rates 
for example, in wealthier whiter neighborhoods like the Upper East Side, where 70% or more of people have gotten a single shot. And then lower income black and brown communities like uptown Manhattan and other parts of the outer boroughs where the rate is really only half of that. And so at a moment when we're reopening, there is still vulnerability and the city's got to do more to close this equity gap. Um, I'm happy to talk more about that if you like, but there are policies which must be put in place now to make sure that no one is left behind in this critical next phase of vaccination. Yeah, I would really love for you to talk about, you know, what policies are being put in place and, and what policies you think you think need to be put in place. We mentioned earlier on the show that City College is a vaccination site. It's it's a walk up site. Uh, I, I, I believe that we're 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 past the point where, you know, the basic definition of vaccine vaccine availability is the problem. But but as you say, there's still tremendous inequity. And so how do we. How do we approach this problem? You know, for the first really four months of vaccination, it was about getting people to vaccines and managing the crush of demand. And probably many of your listeners had that experience of trying frantically to get an appointment, hitting refresh on the web page, and it was a difficult period. That is no longer the challenge we face. At this point, essentially everyone who was highly motivated to get a vaccine has done so. We need to flip the script here. We need to now move to taking vaccines to the people where they are, to people in their churches and houses of worship, in their community centers, NYCHA community centers, uh, senior centers, go mobile with mobile vans, go door to door, vaccination door to door. I really think that the era of the mass vaccination site is over, that places like uh, Javits and uh, City Field, et cetera, which have been iconic, uh, are increasingly not a good use of the thousands of staff people who are there every day. And that we should take those in, those staff members and deploy them out to street corners, going door to door to houses of worship, et cetera. Um, vaccination needs to be ubiquitous. It needs to be in every doctor's office, just like flu vaccine, vaccines are. Uh, it needs to be available without an appointment in pharmacies. It's a mixed bag right now, the extent to which pharmacies are doing this without appointments. Um, and, and, and critically, uh, we need to have a much bigger outreach effort to build trust in the vaccine. And the example I use is what the city did in the census, where we contracted with 150 community-based organizations to go out into neighborhoods and talk about the importance of filling out the census and how to do it. And it worked. In the middle of the worst days of the pandemic, we had a better response rate on the census than other large cities in the country. It's really incredible. But we have not had a similar effort to promote participation in vaccination. We need to elevate trusted local voices and trusted local nonprofits who speak the languages of the city, who have cultural competency, existing relationships, who can hear people out on their understandable doubts and fears because of generations of racism and neglect in the medical system, and can meet people where they're at to share personal stories of the power and safety of vaccination. 
We have much more to do on that front. And I fear that we're losing time as reopening at this point now is really just days away. Can we talk just a little bit about where plans like this may be in the, in the policy process? I, I mean, is this something that that's coming out of your committee on council? Is, is the mayor's office uh, adjusting the rollout regime? What, what can we expect in, 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 in how our local government is handling these issues? Well, so as chair of the city council health committee, my role is to provide oversight. It's to legislate. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we passed the budget. Yep. Um, legislation, as as you know, uh, from your leadership of Colin Powell School, uh, legislation is a process and often not a quick process. And um, uh, it does often require the executive side of government to move quickly in a crisis. And that's what we expect. Uh, I, I can use my platform to to call out for action, and I'm doing it now as I have throughout this. Um, but we, we really need um, the administration to pivot, um, and in some ways they are. Uh, there has been an increasing number of pop-up sites. We did one uh, last Saturday at Antioch Baptist Church on 125th Street, not far from the City College campus. I mean, frankly, the existence of this the uh, the vaccine site on City College campus is itself uh, a step in the right direction. But um, we need to do more. We need a fleet of mobile vehicles. I would love to have a vaccine bus dedicated just to West Harlem that would park one day in front of Manhattanville houses, and then we could door knock a few key buildings to bring people down. Uh, Then we could move to 3333 Broadway. I know your your listeners are familiar with these locations. then we can move to a senior building, then we can move to uh, grand houses. The next people waiting to be vaccinated are not necessarily anti-vaxxers. I want to emphasize that. There are anti-vaxxers out there, but most of the next group of, of people that uh, we will vaccinate are folks who have busy lives, who have complicated obligations in their families, who have jobs with unusual shift hours, who have stress in their life, and they're just not going to be able to go online and make an appointment at Javits Center and take uh, mass transit down there to wait to get their vaccine done and go back a month later. It's just not practical. But when you bring the vaccine to people where they're at, to their homes, to the houses of worship, to their, to their place of work, uh, it, it's a game change. But that's more difficult. You know, the pop-ups like that we did at Antioch um, on Saturday, over, over the course of eight or nine hours, we had 50 people come in. Now, personally, I feel that's an enormous success because I can say that none of those 50 people, I think, would have gotten a vaccine if we hadn't been there in their church, on their block, et cetera. But, um, but it, that does represent um, uh, the lower numbers relative to what we were seeing in previous months. So we, we, we do need the, the administration, the mayor, the health department to pivot um, and I also, I think, to openly acknowledge the challenge, uh, which is real, uh, the, the rates of vaccination have dropped dramatically. I'm afraid probably first shots are down at least 75% from their peak in early April. Uh, we, we need to acknowledge that. We need the city to, to in my opinion, um, close the mass vaccination centers and deploy resources to neighborhood sites um, and to ramp up elevating local voices, as I mentioned. I'm fighting for that as health chair, 
but ultimately we need the city and the state um, to move more quickly. Yeah, and I, I've I've said this to you um, personally at at times during this this pandemic, but but you have truly been a voice, uh, you know, with strong information, good advocacy. I've 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 probably trusted the the information that has come from you on on Twitter and social media more than than almost any other voice. So I want to well, I want to thank you for thank that. Thank you so much. It's um it, it, very important when we when we truly truly needed it. Um, you know, I, I know you talk to, you know, you're at these pop-up sites and you, you just spoke about so much of the, the slowing, uh, of, of the vaccination rate coming from complication in people's lives. But I'm, I'm sure you also hear, I hear, uh, you know, people talking about, you know, other reasons why they're not getting the vaccination. Uh, and I just wonder if, if you could uh, give you an opportunity to dispel some of the myths that you may have heard that, that, that are keeping other folks uh, away from the vaccine. They may not be anti-vaxxers in the traditional right. sense, but, but there's concern about this specific vaccine. Um, and I wonder if, if, if you Yeah, I'd be, ha- I'd be happy that. to. And th- yeah. Thank you. And but first, I, I want to emphasize that um, people's concerns are often entirely understandable uh, because of the history of of racism in the American medical system, and specifically uh, the legacy of of racism in vaccination. Um, people are starting with doubts, and we need to hear that and acknowledge it. And um, you know, I'm, I don't hold myself up as the best messenger on on helping um, overcome some of those concerns. That's why we need to elevate people who have deep roots in the frontline communities that are impacted. Um, but I also think that people have questions just about the science and about um, how these, these, these vaccines work and, and whether they're safe. And, and, and on that, uh, we just can't do enough to share that information. It is really compelling. I have to say that these, these vaccines are, are almost miraculous in their effectiveness. And the two most well-known or the two first that came out of the gate from Pfizer and Moderna are built on a new technology that is probably going to be seen as one of the greatest innovations uh, of, of this era. Uh, it's a kind of uh, vaccine technology that uses MRA, messenger RNA, which um, essentially it's just, it's sending a message to your, your body. So some people compare it, to, it's like an email. It gives an email to your cell to tell them, how to fight uh, what could be the alien presence of this coronavirus. And it doesn't change your genetic code, doesn't alter your cell structure in any way, but it leaves your body with the information it needs to counterattack if your body um, should uh, come into contact uh, with this virus. Uh, It, by the way, has the potential to help us um, find treatments for many other diseases. Uh, which is why I say this could come be come to be seen as a major in- innovation. I've heard some people compare it even to the invention of penicillin. It's part of why there's just been um, remarkable uh, results through now uh, hundreds of millions of administrations of the mRNA vaccines around the world. Um, extraordinary success in preventing nearly all fatalities from COVID-19 and nearly all serious sickness and hospitalization 
from COVID-19. And, and that's your goal. And that's what you're trying to do to stop a public health crisis. And um, furthermore, it dramatically reduces your likelihood of having a mild or asymptomatic case, um, which is also good news for yourself, but also it means that the virus is le less likely to spread. And so I just, I just can't say enough how amazing and well-tested at this point with hundreds of millions of doses administered. Um, the second class of, of, of vaccines, which is Johnson & Johnson, uh, it, it, it's a more traditional uh, technology, if you will, called viral vector. Um, uh, but, but it's also uh, remarkably effective, uh, even despite the recent um, pause that the CDC uh, put into place a couple weeks ago on, on Johnson & Johnson, um, which I think is a sign that our system works, that we take every possible risk seriously. And, and folks should know that uh, the CDC paused Johnson & Johnson because of seven cases of a rare kind of blood clot, uh, blood clot out of six million doses administered in the United States. So really your, your chance is, is greater of being hit by lightning um, than suffering one of these adverse events. Um, and, and so after some due diligence, uh, Johnson & Johnson is now back online and it does represent a great solution for many people. It's only one dose and then you're done. It's very mobile because you don't have to have uh, a very high intensity freezer. And my answer to the question that people ask is when they ask me, which vaccine should I get? I say the first one you can, because they're all great. And I myself, Vince, I got the Johnson yep. & Johnson very happily. Great. Uh, I would do it again in a heartbeat and I would happily advise um, any loved one uh, to get any of the three vaccines, including Johnson & Johnson, and I hope everyone does as soon as they can. Yeah, I got the Pfizer vaccine, but, but like you, um, I, would have, I would have taken any one of these three um, and, and, and not look back, and, and, and so I, I want to uh, uh, echo what, what you just said. So let me ask you a, a broader question. Um, looking from the pandemic to other um, health issues that face the city. What, what have we learned during the pandemic and how do you expect those lessons to filter into our health policies? I hope that we have learned the cost of underinvesting in public health and the cost of underinvesting in health equity. And uh, I hope this will be the moment where we double down in solving those problems. I'm optimistic that we will, but uh, we have seen the cost of lack of investment in our public hospital system, like Harlem Hospital, a neighbor to City College, and the other acute care hospitals, which were on the front lines in the pandemic and had nowhere near the resources of better funded private hospital networks, uh, a major source of inequality. We have seen the cost of a healthcare system, which leaves hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers in the city without health insurance without access to primary care and has left them more vulnerable to diseases like hypertension and diabetes, which directly fed uh, vulnerability and inequality in COVID-19. We've, we've seen the cost of lack of access to healthy food in black and brown neighborhoods of the city where it's still too expensive and too difficult to access fresh and healthy uh, fruit and vegetables. Again, directly contributing to the underlying conditions which made people vulnerable to this pandemic. And I, I believe now that, 
because these problems have been exposed now for the world to see that just like after 9-11, there were untold billions invested in security, probably too much, I would argue, but that's another conversation, that now we'll see billions invested into shoring up our public health systems and to tackling health equity. I will certainly be fighting for that. And uh, I, I am optimistic that um, it's going to be easier than ever uh, to win those kinds of fights. I'm hopeful that that will be one of the positive things that comes out of this this hell is difficult year. Well, I think we're all hopeful for for some positive changes and and how we manage these issues. Uh, so one last question: we we've, we've spent most of our time talking about the the vaccine rollout and and the state of the pandemic itself, and we now have announcements from from the governor and from from the mayor about how we'll be reopening. You know, the announcement from the governor is that CUNY and SUNY campuses will be open only for students who've been vaccinated. But as you, as you look at the pattern of, of reopening, is, is there anything that, that, that concerns you uh, in, in how we're going about it? Or, or, or are there elements of the plan that you think need to be um, emphasized? Well, uh, yeah. yes, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I am concerned. We're moving very quickly next week, essentially, all public facilities from restaurants to bowling alleys to theaters will be allowed to open at 100% capacity. And this is at a time when such a huge portion of our city is unvaccinated. Now, for those of us who are vaccinated, really, uh, we are um, able to safely do almost every activity. But, um, you know, if you're sitting in a movie theater next week at full capacity, you should assume that there are folks in the theater who are not protected. Um, And there still is a lot of virus circulating uh, in the city right now. And I, I do think that we need a, a more robust system for safety screening. I'm not sure I would say only people who are vaccinated can go to the movies, but I would say that if you're not vaccinated, you would need to show a negative test. And that means that if the people who don't want to get the vaccine, they can get tested, but then they and others will, will have uh, a modicum of, of safety um, in those venues. And um, that also might, be the nudge people need to say, you know what, I could get tested constantly to go to my place of work or to go to uh, a Broadway show or or, or next game, but uh, what the heck, I'm just going to get the vaccine so I'm one and done. Uh, yeah. Now, there, there are questions on how you would document that, uh, concerns about privacy, um, and if we have time, I can, I can talk about which I, I think that can be done in a way that's easy and works for people who don't have cell phones or have privacy concerns. But I think we need some safety protocol in place to keep people protected and also to nudge them to get that vaccine, because that really is the ultimate solution that we want everyone to have. Yeah, I, and I'll, I'll say that as we work on city college plans, uh, uh, you know, vaccination status and, and mandatory testing in some combination is going to be a big part of how we how we yeah. approach yeah. keeping our community safe. And I guess, you know, in, it, we're getting to a point as well where, um, you have to say this a little bit delicately, but, but people who are vaccinated are protecting themselves and they're also protecting their communities. Uh, people who are not vaccinated, a, apart from the risk that, that unvaccinated people pose uh, in terms of providing an environment for more variants to emerge, 
they're the ones personally taking on greater risk. And I think that 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 may be part of the conversation uh, going forward. Um, but I agree with you. I, th- I think um, better use of all the tools we have and, and at least a little bit of an effort to think about how we could incentivize people uh, to, to, to get the vaccination. I'm all for uh, giving people gift cards, uh giving people vouchers for yeah. uh going to a sporting event uh uh giving them free transportation to to and from uh yeah. the vaccine site metro cards uh so it it's got to be a multi front strategy that that's what yeah. we're going to need to to get to our goals i i agree and i want to thank you both for your the work you've been doing on this front but also for spending time with us today on from city to the world really grateful uh, for your time and 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 also for that of uh, Dean Susan Perkins. It's really an honor to speak with you. Thank you for listening to From City to the World. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Susan Perkins, Dean of the Martin and Michelle Cohen Division of Science at City College of New York, and Council Member Mark Levine, who represents the 7th District in Northern Manhattan. The show is produced by Angela Harden and yours truly, Vince Boudreaux. I am your host, Vince Boudreaux, the President of the City College of New York, Thanks for tuning in, everybody.